everyone. This is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute. Had some big uh, life events. The death of my dog has uh, debilitated me to the point that this computer has not been turned on in more than a month. So I appreciate your patience. Today I have a talk with a woman who, uh, one of my favorite intellectuals, honestly, uh, her name is Benita Roy. She has been a pivotal, how would I say, uh, mentor and advisor for my friend Peter Lindbergh, creating the STOA. And her presentation at the STOA that she did, that's called The Origins of the Self, was likely the best and most insightful presentation I think I've ever seen, honestly. So I will uh, link that in the description below. If you've listened to this podcast a bunch, you've heard me talk about that presentation specifically and about Benita Roy. So it's with great enthusiasm and gratitude that I present our talk together. So 2023 is here. Welcome to the new world, baby. Um... Today, I'm kind of thinking about Ken Block, the rally race car driver who died in a snowmobile accident, and that uh, makes me sad as a professional action sports athlete and someone who has pushed it for as long as I have. Having someone so talented and so experienced go in is difficult. So, rest in peace to Ken Block and condolences to his friends and family. I'm going to keep ripping. Um... I appreciate you guys' support. If you want to support me in my action sports pursuits as well as this podcast, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. And I also am doing philosophical coaching. If you have existential knots that you need help untying, check out airyintheair.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can check out some mind-blowing content that's on there. I should recommend people visit my website more often than I do, but there's lots of things there that I have put in with the intent to support you. So check it out. Um, yeah, I think that's enough ados. So without further ado, here's my talk with Benita Roy. Benita, thank you so much for making the time. Stoked you're here finally. Yeah, it's great. We already had a lot of fun. Too bad you, the audience, won't be able to enjoy that. <laughs> it's okay. They're going to enjoy the the fruits of that pre-recording jam. So I think I'd like to start somewhere kind of wholesome and talk to you about, you know, just to like kind of preface it where I come from here, um, listening to your origins of the self-presentation in the STOA, which I'll link in the description below. And I've linked it in a number of my videos because it's been so extensively referenced. There was a really amazing part in that that was very insightful for me. And it was that once we, you know, in the deepening vector of our identities, we at some point run into where our similarities with humans ends and then we start to relate to everything else in the ecology to animals. And I want to focus in on this um, joint here, this human-animal relation, because there are ways that 
I question even the ethics of owning a dog, domesticating an animal, spaying a dog, you know, feeding it kibble for its whole life. Like there's all kinds of ways that, you know, I can ruminate that pain me or or concern me. And then there's other ways that just like the human connection to dogs or the human connection to horses is just absolutely incredible. And it just blows my mind. And, and the other day I was just walking down the trail and I just saw a family with their golden retriever. And I just thought, wow, like the, the depth at which these two species are intertwined is just crazy. But there's also this power dynamic where humans are so much more complex and intelligent and powerful. So there's this power dynamic which brings in the question for me of ethics and stewardship, which we haven't always uh, nailed. You know, like I've spent a lot of time in the Latin world and dogs in the Latin world are not what they are in America. And, you know, like I grew up on a ranch and even ranch dogs are like a slightly different thing. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of animal stewardship, the ethics of even owning or domesticating animals. And then I would love to get into the, like almost the lessons and the things that we can learn from, like what is it that our animals are doing that we can learn from? Yeah, well, it's a really big topic and it's one I love, obviously. I think that, first I'd like to reflect back to you that this kinds of question, this kind of inquiry is what the animal, human-animal relationship is engendering, these kind mm. of questions. Like, um, and of course the questions you ask it as, as if they're questions, but you're living the question and yeah. it's not always clear. And I'll tell you a couple of stories like, we have this farm and we, you know, and um, we had one, we have little dogs. And then we have, we had for a long time, two like 55 pound dogs. One was a Husky and he runs away. So he'd always have to be tied up when he got, went down to the barn, but he's a nice dog. And when he runs away, he goes to my neighbors and he hangs out at the barn, like, and everybody knows him. So he's not a nuisance. And then the other dog doesn't, is just a really good dog in the sense that he always hangs out with me. But then we wanted, you know, my husband wanted to get a big white dog. So we got a great Pyrenees and we know they're a lot of work. And, um, you know, he doesn't like run away like a husky and go forever, but he started to, you know, he's, he's treed bears. We're surrounded by state forest. So he's treed bears wow. and, um, you can hear him go into the, the forest and then the dog that never runs away would run with him. Then he started, uh, this is not a good thing. Then he started uh, barking at the hunters in the winter, in the, you know, the fall hunting season. That was not good, but the hunters, I talked to them and they know who he is. It's still not very good. Then he started going and, um, you know, taking hikes with hikers that are going to the state park. And, and then to make a long story short, it became more and more of a nuisance, right? And one day he really likes this little dog across the street and he broke into the woman's house to play with the dog. And he's like 105 pounds, right? <laughs> so 
you know, so we know that uh, this is a problem that's not going away. He's only, he's not, he's two years old. And, um, you know, it's not a problem that's going to go away. So we decided, we found out that you could have these electric hidden dog fences that you could do like 10 acres. So uh, Sandy was extremely excited about it. We got this great guy to do it. And I was having real problems regulating myself because like the way I teach and I have like shock collars on my dogs so, and they used to be able to run to the woods. And, and um, when I first started training them, they were so scared. One wouldn't even go out of the house. And I'm like, what? Like, this is like, a Nazi concentration camp. And I went through this whole process of watching like this whole story come over me. Like, what am I gonna do when people come over? I'd be embarrassed that I have this technology. And But what was interesting was my partner was extremely excited about it. He can't train the dogs because he can't, he's deaf. So he can't hear when the sound comes. And so I, I had to purge myself of this story. And I used, I had to say, okay, just take it one day at a time. I started with one dog. To make a long story short, they learned it really well. They're so happy. I can just let them out now and they play. And the one that used to always be tied up can play. And, um, and so I learned something. Like I learned, so sometimes like, I tell you this story because it, well, it went, in the opposite direction than my learning usually goes. That like they adapted when they see their shot collars, they come running. They they can't can't wait to have it on. One of them I don't even put it on. I just dangle it because he he's the one that never runs away anyways. And their behavior has started mm -hmm. to change. And it basically I would say it's like um it's like they're willing to take, I think they know that it's something that we did and they're willing to accept the rules, except we don't know how, we can't run fast enough with them and keep them organized like a herd leader or something. And, you know, and and we have the beaver came back. They'd love to go and, and chase the beaver, which I didn't like when they chased the beaver and now they can. So the beaver came back and stuff. So I'm just saying that, that this is an interesting question. And I think that there's not one pat answer and we just practice our way forward in terms of, yeah, like what is, what are the, what are the boundary terms of the life I wanna live? Mm. You know, what is acceptable and not acceptable. And sometimes you can go, um, you know, like a, I, I had, Part of the narrative I had to control was I had this, this big story about the dog should be free, free. Like, but then on the other hand, I live in the human world, and yeah. really these were big. This is a big deal when the hundred pound dog like breaks into the house, somebody's house. You know, like she was really nice. She she was the only complaint I got, and she was really nice. But I'm like, no, this is. We have to do something about it. So it's like, to me, I think that it's like a string. I'm just making this up now that I, I am 
feeling into this. It's like a string. They're pulling us into their world. We're pulling them into our world. And it's a push-pull. And they don't want to do everything in our world. But, it but, but it's also true. Humans can't be wild. I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it's not where we belong. It's not our, it's not our original nature. And so the, the question is like, what are the boundaries where it's clearly on one side and not the other? And then of course the boundaries are fuzzy. And I'll just say one other thing, like one of the things that was very powerful to me when I was asking questions about horses, like, do we have a right to ride them? Do like, what is training? Um, this one guy who's, who is like a horse phenom, um, he said that 99% of the horses are better off in nature than where they are. He said, but there's 1% of the horses that have a certain kind of relationship with the humans that it is better than anything they could experience in nature. And that gave me re really a lot of hope. Like, what is it, you know, like, like, what is it that is calling us to be and have a new relationship with animals such that um such that they experience something that's not available in nature mm. and and that's an that's an interesting question and it's not just you know that they get fed and we reduce a lot of the challenges it's it's a different kind of question i think yeah the the thing that comes to mind especially with the the horse analogy that you know there that one percent of the horses that have that special capacity to have something that's co-creative collaborative um emergent between the human and the horse, that's something they could never experience in nature. I think that's a, that sounds like one of potential beautiful metrics of, of our ethics of our stewardship with animals. Um, horses are a unique, um, subject because they basically powered our world. They powered the transition from, you know, they just like, you know, that, that husbandry was, was not entirely co-creative. And I think that a very small proportion of it was, and it's also, you know, that animals have given so much for our development, our, our civilization. Um, that fossil fuels replaced. So, and there's, you know, like uh, the animal rights activists, I'm sure celebrated the internal combustion engine because horses stopped dying by the droves to drag us around. Well, let's go back though. What do you think this experience is for the horse? that that 1% of horses 
what is it that they experience and what do we what can we like glean from it what do we learn from that and so there's a lot of little points and principles that are quite simple but they're not easy um horses like to work um you know part of the depression let's say in, in our animals is that they don't have work to do um but and just like other animals they are very um encouraged or they built you can build relationship with a horse by giving them challenges and stuff but it's all in a social relationship they understand it's a challenge they understand there's a puzzle to be solved um they like to use their bodies and it feels good even, even if it's hard it's just like us we go to the gym and we go hiking and we're sore maybe but we we can tell we get energized by it. And so you can build these virtuous cycles of work, physical work into a horse where they feel energized by it versus people like who have these horses that never get out of stalls. And even then it depends. Wait. So the basis of, of health in horses is, um, um, there's a lot of bases. I mean, nutrition is very interesting in horses, very complex, but they're social animals. And um, and if so, if you can, just like us, you know, why don't people climb Mount Everest? It's not, it's about Everest, but they create these relationships and building the plan and the, and the cross-cultural, all of this is part of what makes um, horses, we'll just stick with horses, horses thrive at any endeavor. And so early on when horses plowed, they were like part of the family and they were, um, um, they didn't run away because that was their home, you know? So so what? at what point does an animal become a slave or just a tool? That is, that's really the question, you know? And so once things become industrialized, and they're pulling carts, but nobody cares, or um, we expect mm. them to run like like machines and not like like partnership, some kind of partnership. Then you have um, uh, the depletion both of the human and the animal, and mm -hmm. there's certain size signs in the animal. So, um, but the other thing with horses and people is that we like there's i have some horses that really like to do certain things and not others and if i go and buy a horse and i have this idea of what i want to do with it and it's the not it's the horse is not intrinsically motivated for that then i'm working uphill my whole life and i mm -hmm. have to put more technology and it's less it's ne less fun for the horse versus when you know, I bought this one horse. He was, I bought him very young. He was a stallion. He was supposed to be great at endurance riding. His full-blooded brother was big and lanky. And and his son is like that. But he's this little tiny pony. And he's really fancy. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with him? And that's when I learned to dance with horses. Like, this is what he likes to do. Oh, this is kind of interesting. So this is the problem. Like, people just if you just think okay here's a tool this is what the tool is supposed to do and they force that they think the animal is a bad attitude because all horses should be able to do this 
And many horses can shine and thrive doing that. But you have to have the right horse, just like when people have kids and all they can think of, my kid is going to be like this. They don't, uh -huh. they have no, oh, what's the potential state? How yeah. can I support the innate potential of the horse such that it, it thrives in its developmental process? That it's like, oh, there's a puzzle to be solved here. Yeah. And they work, you know, how do you, how do you do that? So it's not whether a horse is pulling a cart or not, or uh -huh. um, it's, it's whether you're working with the natural enthusiasm mm -hmm. of the horse. That's, that's really, I think, the key. And then, you know, then there's a question is, how do you know? Well, it takes, it takes a commitment to a certain type of inquiry. Yeah. And noticing and having the embodied feedback and allowing surprises to inform you, like, why did he do that? I didn't want him to do that versus, wow, where is this going? Let's see. Yeah. You know, like. It's a like, sensitivity and a curiosity. Exactly. Yeah. So. So. You know, that's why I ended up with, I used to have eight, six horses, because in order to do all the things I wanted to do with horses, uh, yeah, that's just not real. But but that's the question. It's it's not, it's the same thing like with uh, practices like yoga or Tai Chi. People see it and they're like, oh, I want to do that. But it's not about doing the form. It's about inhabiting the kind of energy enthusiasm such that the body is doing that. Mm. And, 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 um, say that yes. again. Say okay. that again. So people learn yoga, they learn to do the yes. stretches, they learn to do the forms, they learn Tai Chi, maybe. But how did Tai Chi first start? There was no manual. There were no moves. Uh -huh. It was paying attention to something in the body. Uh -huh. Okay. And so what we do now is we look at the product and mimic it versus go to the source mm. of the movement itself. And unfortunately, that... The source of the movement itself is in like the child's movement. This is all these practices like Feldenkrais and stuff. They get you to lay on the floor and reimagine re your body as like, you know, crawling and and so that you don't you don't rush to this like sophisticated form without understanding what is the natural enthusiasm of my body. I let me just pay attention to that. And then what is my what is my body doing? But of course, in our culture, we we do the opposite. Sit still. Don't do that. Like, like the whole thing is kind of kind of we're very skeptical about our natural intelligences. We work uphill against mm -hmm. it. And then yeah, and then we're at a loss to actually 
experience that. We can reproduce the external form, but uh, we get caught up in, in thinking we're doing something when we're just mimicking the product of that something. Mm, that's very interesting. That makes me think of uh, five rhythms or a static dance. The It's almost like a and it's funny, I remember the first time I went to a static dance and I saw people just like kind of like rolling around on the ground. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, well, who is that? That's so weird. And then I remember thinking, oh, I can't dance to this music. This isn't dance music. And then as I spent more time in that kind of energy, that kind of community and centered around that activity, I realized, no, no, it's like whatever music is happening, you is becomes a sensitivity and a curiosity to like what your body would do if you set it free to play with the rhythm that it's hearing. Um, it's, it's That's what I'm saying. These things we talk about, they're actually so simple, but they're mm -hmm. not easy. It's like horses. You know, a lot of people take horseback, you know, equitation. They get on the horse and they get their body, they want their body to look straight and this and that. And it's all like trying to put their body in a frame. And then the, the instructors actually use that. You got to put the horse into a frame. Whereas I'll do horse workshops here with people who never rode horses. And we learn how the horse's body naturally moves. We do that on the ground. And then they'll get up their back. And I'm like, okay, now how does that horse have to move? Well, that hip has to go like this. And so you go like this with your hip on the horse and the horse moves that way. And, and eventually what you put together is this beautiful fluid picture that's effortless, but you'll mm. never get that way by driving your horse. Like, okay, I've seen the pictures. This is what I should, I should look like, you know, mm -hmm. I remember here's another, I don't know. I jump. this is a jump, but I remember watching figure skating at, you know, Olympic figure skating. And this one woman was doing these quads and doing all this stuff. And the commentator said, listen, listen to the way the skate edge sounds on the ice. Yeah. It's too forced. And then they would show you the which is like she was such a professional she could tell that the body and the whole thing was too static and stiff you know mm -hmm. and not really elegant and graceful because of the way the sound the edge of the skate made on the ice you know mm -hmm. so like these are what where everything is rewarded the whole the 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 illusion of the product is awarded in our society we try to get there really fast horses are supposed to like be able to do this at three years old mm -hmm. then you can make money on them and so we take all these shortcuts to get the illusion of something that people will pay for and of course this can bring us into like ftx scandals and bitcoin scandals and dallas you know uh -huh. why are people so vulnerable to these scandals these these ponzi schemes because we're completely uh entangled in the illusion of the world and and it's easy for us to be because we're not 
we're no longer tethered or or inserted or planted in the real life force. Yeah, the animating force. Mm, that's really interesting. Let me just reflect that back here. Your analogy was that when someone wants to learn, air quotes, yoga, instead of learning yoga, they are they are trying to replicate the product of yoga, which is the certain poses, the movements. And there might be an underlying animating force that actually comes from their life force inside of their body that would have them do yoga in a way that to to make an extreme example might look radically different than the product of air quotes yoga that they see in popular culture you know my yoga might not include downward facing dog at all right if i really just tune into my body and just like uh, do the practice from the animating force itself and your conclusion there is that we are often disassociated or disconnected from our animating life force. And I think that this is, I couldn't agree more. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. I'm a professional athlete and my whole life has been chasing whatever the animating force in my body is whatever i find really fun and exciting is where i go and i've just gone from one sport to the next and uh you know i've really enjoyed the parts of learning where my learning curve has gotten really steep and the progression is fast and exciting and and every sport that i've learned has has paved the way for the next sport and it's all just gotten a bit more dangerous and a bit more extreme and and now we're at base jumping and it's so fun and it's it's I, I feel the animating force of my life through my sports. I feel the animating force in my life and my intellect, my like seeking for understanding and truth in my podcast. So I feel like I am tied into this animating force in certain ways. And I'm I'm learning to do it with my relationships and my sexuality. I'm learning to do it with my diet. I'm, you know, there's all these budding ways. And I I had last year a beautiful conversation with our mutual friend Skylar Brown. And in that conversation, she recommended that I speak to you four <laughs> times or something. And and in that conversation, we kind of just like came across this reality that when we disconnect from that animating force in our lives we open the door for us to do horrendous things to animals and or the environment. And you've mentioned it there. You mentioned it almost like in passing was that there was a, if, if the animal is dragging a cart without the care and without being positioned in the framework of existence in the framework of care and love and family, as you referred it, then there's a depletion of the animal and there's a depletion of the human. And I thought that I, I noted that as you said that, and I think it's really interesting uh, to think about. And, you know, as 
as Jordan Hall has has mentioned a number of times, his his estimation is that humanity is performing at less than 10% capacity. And when I think about that, I think about the ways in which we parent our children with these closed frames of that lack curiosity, that lack sensitivity to what the enthusiasm of the child is bringing into existence, what the developmental potential is for the child and just like wanting to create a space to have that facilitated. Um, you know, the Schmachtenberger brothers who have just gained so much notoriety in our little corner of the internet because of their incredible articulation and consideration of so many factors. They're two of my favorite philosophers ever. And the way that they were raised as they've, as it's been called unschooling and how Daniel has articulated it, which is basically that the goal is to try to f help curate this innate enthusiasm in the child using curiosity to find out what the child is really enthusiastic about doing and or learning. And then, as he says, facilitate the shit out of that, which I think is such a beautiful thing. And that's kind of what I hear. You're kind of unschooling your horses. You take the horse with sensitivity and curiosity and you ask the question or you live the question, as you said, what is the animating force of the universe animating in this particular animal at this particular time right now? And this kind of like, I, I feel like I'm being led right now into the cosmoerotic humanism discussion that Zach Stein, Mark Gaffney, Ken Wilbur have all uh, been jamming on it. I would love to hear your take on this. And if I just articulate it uh, briefly and hopefully not butcher it, it's the cosmoerotic humanism is essentially, uh, to problematize it, it's essentially that in pre-modernity, we had everything controlled by religion top down. And then in modernity, we realized that was fucked up. And so we threw that out and by throwing that out, we there was actually baby that went out with the bathwater, and the baby was that there was a unifying story of humanity. And in postmodernism, we realized that we were destroying the earth, that we were doing all kinds of horrendous social justice um, sins, that the basically we we onboarded so much knowledge of the shadow of our existence. And we learned it at the time where we had removed the unifying story of what it means that we exist at the same time. And now we kind of live in this world where the unifying story of why we exist is lost. And the extreme examples of that sound like humans are a plague on the earth. Um, that we shouldn't reproduce that we're overpopulated that and all of these various um things and that's just like that's the existential shtick and that doesn't even go into the social justice versions of how we 
have kind of condemned ourselves without this unifying story. Um, the cosmoerotic humanism story is essentially that the animating force of the universe and their kind of their term that they're using is eros, um, which is the foundation of erotic, and it's that the animating force of the universe that draws subatomic particles into a higher order existence of being an atom. And then those atoms are drawn by this animating force into becoming a molecule, molecules to cells, cells to organisms, into ecology, all the way into cosmos, right? Holons all the way up and all the way down. That that animating force is essentially love and that there's a metaphysical truth and reality that we can all touch every day with mundane language. So I'd love to hear your your kind of your thoughts on this um, cosmoerotic humanism. I know that you're as read on Ken Wilber's work as anyone I've come across. And so I would love to hear your take on this. Yeah, so I think it's a beautiful attempt to uh, organize a metaphysics, a story that um, corrects on some of uh, both modernism and postmodernism, but I think the mental model is ass backwards. I think that there's something extremely incorrect about it. And um, let me give you some of some of the things I've been seeing for years. Okay, depending upon how you read it, but when I've seen Mark Gaffney, when I talk to Zach, it seems different. When I when I've seen Mark Gaffney, he seems to be more unlike what I I, I seem to disagree with him more. It's not always clear how they hold this, but. This whole model of things getting more and more complex through time. Whitehead said that that's not true because we only count the actuals. We don't count the potential. It's like saying our agriculture system is getting more and more complex while we ruin the soil. The soil is more complex than the agricultural products. If you look at like what then what the molecules do inside the ribosomes of my cell, like nobody knows how to do that. It's, 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 they don't even have their own DNA. We, we think that they're not alive. Like the amount of complexity in the material and elemental aspect of my body can, is way outside what a human can do. Okay, the, the deeper levels are both more fundamental and more complex because they have more complexity in the potential than in the actual. Hmm. Okay, so like, like the seed is more complex than the acorn. The mutations happen in the germ cells, not in the humans. And so if you count potential, so I'll give you an example. I was once sitting in nice studio with some people that were all from the Santa Fe Institute. It was early on when they talked about the singularity was going to happen and the speed of computation was doubling. 
And they counted up like, cause they're like geniuses and they, they were all like talking about like, and then two times and then by double that. And then, okay, in 20 years, the singularity is gonna happen. And I said, that's cause you're only counting the bits in human computation. You're not counting all the bits of all the elements in me and all the uh, all the evolutionary elements and the and the and the weather forces that make me happy uh, possible and then the universal forces and the fact that the stars are making if you count the background potential that is required for me this little peculiarity to happen there's no there's no comparison like there's there's so many more bits in the background. They're, 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 it, the whole thing is asked backwards. And this is what Whitehead said. You only count the actuals. You don't count the potentials. So this notion, this is notion that we grow toward larger and larger synthesis is what I call the shadow of post-war humanism. We come from unity, right? Our, we come from the same stuff. We come from animal ancestors. We come from life. We come from stardust. These are huge unifying levels, huge. And we grow toward individual. We grow toward diversity. There's some part of your experience that no one can share. It's not shareable, not a lot of it, but the part of you that's made out of elements is the exact same as me. We come from a prior unity and we grow toward diversity. The unification story is in the lower potentials, in the more fundamental university, universals. And this is what we've forgotten. When religion came along, it said, oh, you're not all the same because Mother Earth, the lower fundamental, gave birth to all of you. You're all the same because God, you have to understand this story. You have to, you have to be, we need something, some imaginary story so we can all get together and be on the same page. This is hmm. bad faith. We come from unity. It's a given. The question is, why don't we know that? And why do we feel we have to supplant it with some kind of higher kind of overarching story that's already there? Because that story has been destroyed. That's not even a story. It's it's the it's the genealogy of of everything that exists, right? So 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 that whole mental model. This is why I'm not on the same page as the people that are my colleagues. Really, is because there's a whole. To me, there's a whole. There's a whole problem with that whole story, with that it's a mental model of how things grow into complexity. Now, in terms of the life force, can you tell me the? Can you tell me the story though? Like I want to. The, the story that I disagree with. Yes. Okay, that when molecules get together, when atoms get together to form molecules, that's more complex and more whole. And we get eventually humans have to have this layer of cognitive storytelling that's a larger unity. What is actually is we should have more languages and the mind can create infinite ideas and it there's the pluriverse up in that direction and the universe mm. is down in that direction uh. 
the 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 low the deeper levels have more potential and they're more primordial, they're more fundamental, they have more potential, and they're deeper universals. We come from unity. I love we this. We grow toward diversity. And this is the problem. This is why our world is screwed up. Because we are not able to be with diversity. We are not able, and, and this is a takes it, it, it stands the, the diversity and inclusion thing on its head because that's a race for like the one thing people should be. And people shouldn't be one thing. We're one species. We're animals like the other animals. We're similar, we're, but in that direction. But the whole effulgence of arrows is to create diversity. The most diverse thing in the in the world, the most unique thing in the world is in the future, and you'll never get there. Because even, people even take Teilhard de Jardin, I wrote about this like 15 years ago, and they said, well, he said that there's gonna be, with the humans, there'll be a unification. But the church took out what he said, and if you go to his original, there's a book on it. I wrote about it on the old beams and the struts. What he said is there's never there's both a, a movement toward unification and it's always balanced by radial expansion. So there's mm. the, the, you never get to a unifying point. This is a complete misunderstanding. This is why we destroy the earth because instead of saying all all, all the fundamental, you know, the richness is in the potential and then let the diversity bloom. Now, having said that, then what connects us? What connects us, okay? So I'll first give you this mental, this little analogy and then I'll tell you what connects us. So when I uh, start in the program, is over now, but for 15 years, I taught a course in transformative psychology and consciousness studies. And I'd always start by saying, <clears throat> we're lucky because there's an East-West fusion, right? So like we, a lot of us are Buddhists and we practice meditation and we're scientists, but all of that is in the Indo-European language family. If you go out of the Indo-European language family, you see a different reality. Now, what are the two different realities in there? So when I, if I ask someone in the Indo-European language family to imagine three glasses of water, and I ask someone here to, um, sorry, yeah, and I ask someone here, to the Chan Buddhists, some of the Tibetans, imagine three glasses of water these are the language families that are process-based okay both of them will agree that as a metaphor the glasses are the structures and the water is the process but the people in the indo-european language family that have a noun verb language construction they see three glasses of water on a table so the question is, how do things touch? The, how does the water, which is like the life force, touch? 
you have the question because deep in our mental model is that things are separate. So I argued that both in the East and the West in this language family, all of their science and philosophy is actually generated by this impossible question, how do things touch? And the question itself comes from a mental model. So in the East, you have the storehouse consciousness and you have Atman and Brahman and you have all this stuff. And in the West, you have like the ether or the background radiation or we're always, or like higher consciousness or God or something. We're always in the Indo-European language family. This has given rise to our entire cognitive project. How do these things touch? But you see, the question comes from, we start with a very, very, very deep metaphysics of separation. And so the cosmoerotic story is another story about how do things touch, okay? Now, it thinks I'm raising my hand because, because I'm, um, yeah, all right. So what happens over here? These people are seeing three glasses of three glasses and a tank of water. You see the difference? They don't they don't have to ask how do things touch. The structures are just all from shut up. They're envisioning three glasses in a tank of water. And that the, the structures are just densifications of that tank of water, and the water is the deeper universals. So you have both diversity, you mm. never have separation. And so the, the so what the point I'm trying to say is there is a very deep malware in humans today. And it produces the energy for someone to talk about cosmoeroticism. But it doesn't, that story doesn't deconstruct the primary mental model that is the problem in the first place. Mm. And so what do I think? How can we get, why do things touch? How do things touch? How do you experience that things touch? It's not conceptual. It's through intimacy. And so the things you were talking about, being intimate with your body and what does it want to do and intimate with your horse or intimate with the animal you're going to kill for food. Or as we talked about when we went to the Respond event at Maple, like I said, you're not going to solve these problems by getting smart people in the room. You're going to solve these problems by the question of intimacy by becoming intimate with the people that you're asking questions with. And then if those people are smart, then you have the most powerful problem solving thing in the universe. And so this is part of maybe Gaffney's message that it's the intimacy that is powerful, but the intimacy doesn't come from some kind of metaphysical story or postulation. It comes from, the possibility in every moment that I could be intimate with the stone. When I really look at it and I feel it, I want to put it in my mouth. It's soft. It's a river stone. And when I put it in my mouth, I think, well, that's like when it's in the water, it's like on a tongue. And I start to like 
dive into a relationship that's incredibly intimate. This is the possibility of Eros in the world. It comes from inside and out, but don't think it's going to unify. Everybody's going to be like, oh, yes, Eros, you know. Everybody's like scrambling to own the story that's going to like create a mass consciousness so everybody is aligned. No, we're already whole. We're already intimate. We're already unified from the deeper universals, from Mother Earth, as the indigenous people with Aram, you know, we have the same mother. We don't have to talk the same language. We don't have to agree to be together. We're, we have to just realize that that is a given. And the question is, why is it that we don't know that or don't experience that? It's because we have this mental model of separation. It's very, very deep. Mm. You know, you could you could create a metaphysics that said, oh, up there, we're not separate. But it just shows your your already starting point is that there's something that has to be done about it. Mm, that's interesting. That is interesting. There's a there's some Charles Eisenstein I hear in this. He says the same thing. He's one of the few people in this whole thing that comes from like. I heard him say today, you know, like, what what are you going to do about everything? Well, what does your body want to do? Why, why don't you do what feels good, you know? And that, and if you get, you can't be, you're not going to be addicted forever if you pay attention to your body, because it's just like the half-life of these things on the internet that get really addictive, and then it's the next thing. It, there always has to be a next thing, because your body, you know, your body says, that's boring. Yeah, Charles Eisenstein, I think, is... is He's got it. Got it. Okay, so the, the Eisenstein thing is basically that he wrote about and that I'm referring to is basically the story of separation, that we have somewhere picked up this story in us that we are separate and there's something that needs to be unified. And... Gaffney and Stein and the cosmoerotic humanism is a attempt at providing a story that unifies. And I feel like that's a, there's almost like a little bit of a straw man there, mm -hmm. I feel, because I think that one of their messages, you know, Zach is such a profound thinker and, and I think that, you know, and, those guys just love the all the sacred geometry, just the interconnectedness of existence altogether. So I have a hard time thinking that they are starting from a place of separation um, in their like in their deep metaphysics. Yeah, as I said, Zach, when I talk to him, he's very sympathetic to this vision that I just laid out. I, I don't know Gaffney when Gaffney's interviewed, he says more of the molecules going to the this going to the that so uh -huh. i'm not sure I, I i started off by saying i have never spoken to gaffney and there is a switch from eisenstein to uh to to the cosmoeroticism if we're just we're just talking about knowing them from their podcasts i i, I don't because yeah. yeah. charles calls it a story like we need to make up, a, but he doesn't embody it like a story. He embodies it like it's a metaphysical principle of the universe. Yeah. We're all, we're not separate. Yeah. 
And then um, osmoeroticism is a a um, a de declaration that eros is a metaphysical principle. Yeah. My problem with it is that then when they describe the complexification of the world, it puts that metaphysical principle above your head up there and then they'll say no but it's 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 primary but they're 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 loath to follow the chain of being right down through matter in that way there's there's some kind of slipped disc there mm. like like there 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 there's still the perennial philosophy in there yep. and this this problem with counting only actuals and not potentials. But I do believe both of them start from the fact that it's a metaphysical, re real thing that we're not separate. And, um, and. Okay, so I, yeah. I hear, I think you agree that, that through modernity and post-modernity, we've lost this unifying understanding or the, the story of separation has taken over and so much of how we show up on earth comes from that place of separation. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's prior to pre-modernity. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, prior to modernity, I think this is when you start to see the development in the European language family, you start to see this deep error percolating into the collective imagination. Mm. Okay, so what's the what's the story then? What's the Bonita story that I don't I don't know how to say it, like brings us back to the deep understanding that there is no separation to be resolved. Because uh, you know, on on one hand, I can agree that we're all whole, but like it's almost like a duality. It's like two sides of the coin that I'm whole and fucked up simultaneously. You know, like even in my own ontology, I just feel myself as like whole and like I'm okay. And then also like if I want to like find things that I ought be improving or could be improving in my life, whether that's developmentally or in my ecology of practices or how often I feel my body or like all these different things, like I – that coin spins in the air and and uh, flickers light off both sides. Yeah. Okay, so two questions there. First of all, for me, you can have this profound experience of being whole. And now all the fear, all the skepticism goes away. And from that, many stories can flourish, right? I tell this story of how, like, when Picasso, you can, we're weird about conceptual concepts and metaphysics like like if i if if i go to if i it's it's like picasso saying okay i invented this way of 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 doing art now all art for all eternity should look like this so with art when we think of art as expression some deep human intimacy with life we expect an explosion of forms to come from that and so for me, when you sit in the seat of the deep, deepest awareness of your wholeness, you would expect an explosion, 
combinatorial explosion of stories to come from that. And in fact, I would say the stories that try to say, well, in the future, we'll all be in the same value system comes from the dis the fact that something in the body knows we're whole and it's trying mm -hmm. it's asking those questions but it's not it's not aligned there's a there's a misalignment so <clears throat> so that's the stories there should be many stories that reflect this feeling and for some reason we think the feeling isn't real unless all the stories are the same but given the fact that that's not how art works, which is the effusion mm -hmm. of, of meaning making from the lived experience, we shouldn't expect our theories and our metaphysics and our, which are stories. See, that's, we have this funny relationship with, with metaphysical systems that they, they, they're going to solve something once and for all versus they're part of this human, it, it, flourishing of creative energy mm. right so that's one thing and why do you feel fucked up because you think wholeness has something to do with not feeling uncomfortable huh. <laughs> i mean where did that assumption come mm. from like i don't know where did that assumption come from it'd be like assuming that growing uh i'm not growing because it hurts you know when you're a kid like this is, or like puberty, okay, puberty is bad because it doesn't feel right. It must be gender, that, you know, dysmorphic or something. Like the truth, so these are just, we've conflated these qualities. I don't know where, like why, yeah. probably from advertising, right? So if it's right, mm -hmm. we feel good versus, and mm -hmm. if it's, we don't feel good, then it must be wrong. And this is, part of the malware we have they're not just they're not the same thing we we coupled them together in our imagination interesting yeah i think that there's it's pretty obvious to me as you say that that there's an assumption that wholeness and comfort are the same thing or wholeness and whatever you're describing yeah now, now if you tip the balance you don't let the discomfort doubt the wholeness. If you just go there, then now you discomfort and you now you say, ah, what's the intelligence in this? There has to be intelligence in it because it's part of the intelligence of the universe because it doesn't stick out here. It's not a sore thumb. Mm -hmm. My fucked upness is not a sore thumb. It can't, it can't be because of the principle of wholeness. I mean, someone should have walked out, uh, walked out from underneath the tree and say, first noble truth, <laughs> principle of wholeness. Wow. And I, I think your, your intuition on maybe where that came from, the advertising element just strikes me as so incredibly potent as problems to be solved and, um, you know, ailments to be alleviated. Yeah, and I see it in myself. My whole head is kind of um, conditioned to think in that way, although I've done my best to try to rewire that as much as I can, uh, mainly through 
my use of language and nonviolent communication and trying to instill curiosity back into my language so that when someone says, ow, my blank or my emotions hurt or anything, my first response is not to advertise some kind of solution to them. Um, but I can definitely see how advertising and has has created that loop for us. I but I mean another another thing is to go back and think of yourself as a living organism, you know, like we life exists at the edge of chaos. I mean, you're a base jumper. There's there's something doesn't make any sense if 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 life was just homeostatic, right? Like yeah. and and there's no end to the the rhythm of there's arousal there's the the movement toward actions that satisfy them through the sensory motor system this is constant so even if you um you know even like the most profound meditator who's just meditating all, all the time and li lives in a cave there's there's a sequence by which now I've got to get through another day. The action that satisfies yeah. is to keep sitting there. There, there's no way out of that, and it certainly is fundamental to living organisms. But I would argue it's fundamental to the activity of matter itself. Like mm. the electrons don't stop, and there's the forces. The, the form has arousal push-pull energies that mm. come from them. They don't come from anywhere else. And and every and so a lot of times the fucked upness that we're sold is just because if we check in, we see, well, I'm not perfectly harmonized. I'm not perfectly in balance. And there's there's no way to be perfectly imbalanced. I mean, even at the level of the proton, you're radiating, it has a half-life. It's yeah. nothing is ever. And so, so somehow it's like the same thing with sadness. I sat with someone who did some horse workshops here and it took a long time to get through with it. It was fun and this and that. And one day we're just sitting there and he finally said, you know, basically I'm really, really sad. And I said, okay, well, let's go there. And we sat in the sadness, but now there was no negative connotation yeah. and the animals started to come toward us. And I don't know, we, we had this really cool experience of the clouds and things that were maybe happening anyways, but you, it changed the perception yeah. of what reality is. And, and I said, you know, why, why are we taught that that feeling you know, it's a state. Sadness is an energy state. It's a peculiar one. Why are we taught to move on from that? Mm -hmm. Like, so now every time you find yourself sad, you think there's something wrong with you. You know, you have to do something about it, like coaching or something, you know, like, like there's so much of the human experience, the natural intelligence of the human experience that we're very confused about. Yeah. Wow. That's such an encouraging message, really, that there is so much confusion about the, how would I say it? It's like the value of our various experiences. We 
just shun ourselves from so many of them. And it's also so encouraging. What I hear there is that the wholeness and the fucked upness are just in tension with each other. They're just coexisting and the even the subatomic particles feel the same kind of I would almost say like erratic movement in it's, there. It's arrows without the sugar coating. I mean, and you know, and like everything, everything needs to be reversed. Like we have an opportunity to really like just reverse the whole run the the vinyl record backwards to discover uh -huh. the secret words, you know? Yeah. It's like it's like Christianity is sold you a bad story. Like, like you're fucked up because you have original sin. And it doesn't matter if you go to church, this is deep in our psyche. You know, like I remember hearing the, the priests say I went to 12 years Catholic school. You don't, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you were born with original sin. Like, like you're fucked up to begin with. Like this is, this, this is a horrible story, right? It is. But the Buddhists do the same thing. The, what is the original sin in Buddhism? You're born a human. You didn't get off the wheel. It's the same. You're fucked because you're you you happen to be born. Like like it's not in the native. It's not in the like the outside the Indo-European families. Not in the indigenous stories. It's not in the you know. It's like like. Then that's deep in our psyche. Deep yeah, in our is. psyche. Mm. Yeah, and it's such an easy story to internalize because we all do f f suffer. You know, like that story sticks to our ribs on so many of our experiences oh yeah i'm fucked up yeah totally like you've been in here too like it's like perfect advertising you know like it is like they sell the car because of the beautiful woman because that's that's the hook there's a hook in all of these things you know like it it works because there's a hook that you yeah. can attach to Okay. Can I just can I just say something for the audience to about everything we just said? Mm -hmm. So the things I'm saying is just the beginning. You know, first you have to switch, and then you have to build on top of that. It's not just like oh, we're all cool, we're all whole, everything's perfect. But we have to switch the mental model, these deep malware, and then say, okay, now how can I look at the internet? How can I look at conflict? How can I look at education? But we want to come from this whole other vantage point. Hmm. To me, that's like having a, it starts with getting a meta awareness of language to begin with. You have to understand that language is a psychotechnology that's so deep we don't it's literally like the the fish is wet and doesn't realize it's in water like language is so incredibly 
<clears throat> innate to our experience, albeit not innate to our species. You know, the boy raised right. by wolves doesn't speak English. He doesn't speak. So we have the the hardware for it, but that's it's soft. It's a technology that we upload into each other, into our children, and that's something that we have to recognize. It's so important. Um, and then only once you can do that can you start to see the scope of implications that even as you've alluded to a number of times here, just the language that you speak is going to determine so much of how you think and what you experience and your metaphysics. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, in in the, my courses, that's pretty much all we do is try to, through, and we, work, we work with topics and we work with, but basically we're trying to get people to see that the vantage point, the mental models, these deep structures that are shared now with almost everyone at some in some version because of this Indo-European language family are the things that need to be revised. Everything else within it is just we have to do it, but it's just it's it's not radical enough. And 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 so so are you suggesting that we need a different like we can't do uh a planetary consciousness or we can't do a planetary collaboration in English? Well, it might look like English, but it, the, the the connotations of the words will change. I mean, like the course I'm running in 2023 is called The New Theory of the Body. It's mm. basically to revise language in such a way that it that I call it epistemic leakage. I might be saying we're all whole, but then I talk about like the body and the mind and the mind is, it, it, I have epistemic leakage when I start to talk about this thing it, because the way I talk about it is as if it's not mind nature, it's mind and the body, right? So mm -hmm. how do we create And part of it is not just creating the language, it's 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 accompanying people on a journey so that they know for sure that we're whole. Mm. And then you will struggle to say that without some of these some of these traps, but yeah. Uh That's a but big... that's that's the that's the that's the work I think. Yeah, and what a huge mountain of work that is. Um, you know, the idea that it's a paradigmatic shift to begin with, and then gets built up from a new paradigm is, uh, you know, like it's a it's an enormous task because I as I parent children every day i i really like in my deepest desire i don't want to upload the malware onto them 
but like how to not upload the malware onto them is fucking hard. Like I it's 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 so deep in me that it's like difficult to recognize what is like where it is and and how it sounds. And then if when I recognize it, then what do I replace it with is even a bigger question. You know, this, you know, we started with this lived inquiry of like what is ethic of animal stewardship and i'm living the same inquiry of like what is the ethic of parenting you know like intergenerational transmission like how do i do it and this is a perfect segue into our uh section of this show called let's try to get canceled and because i as i mentioned to you before we started recording i have had my head you know, I I try not to let my thoughts or the topics of which I'm inquiring be dictated by the media, but trans topics have been floating around in the media long enough that I I have considered it for a long time. I've also had it in my life. I have a very close friend who is a trans woman um, who I just like adore and respect, and I also have a family member who has um, at an age that I was very disturbed by had a double mastectomy and it just like, it disturbed me deeply. And I just, um, so there's a number of things about the trans topic that I think are really disturbing for people that don't, that basically get straw manned and that kind of get canceled. The the idea of like mutilating surgically genitals is something that like is a disturbing thought for me. The idea of, you know, like even for me, like the idea of getting tattooed, like that I believe something so much today that I'm going to tattoo it on my body is just like, it's, it's too, it's not even cringe, but it's like, it's somewhere situated around cringe like i just don't see myself like that that i know so much today that i'm going to tattoo it on my body so that 10 years later i'm going to look back and be like yes that thing that's my identity those are my thoughts that's my thing and so the idea of like <clears throat> regretting my gender transformation surgery is just so terrifying to me so there's also you know like uh, the deeper levels of this like shared story about biology there's a deeper there's this this free speech question of like you know um that is stacked on top of how do i make my identity am i solitary in my ability to make my identity and the insistence that yes the fuck i am I can tell you what gender i am i can tell you my biological gender that's what you know, even though you're my parent and you disagree with it. So, you know, it's, it's something that, um, I've, my head has spun around a lot and I, I have looked up to your identity shtick for long enough now that I'm, I'm curious on your take. And it's also a, something that I would love to hear from Zach Stein. And just as a, as a slight aside that I meant to tell you before we trans, before we uh, segue to Transition. this, 
I know. I, I, st- I stopped. I stopped myself from saying I stopped myself from saying it. But before we transitioned, um, I just I hope that you will come into dialogue with Gaffney and Zach Stein about this because I think that they could use your support and your uh, this uh, just the fact that you're a woman and that you have a different take on it i think you temper their ideas in a such a beautiful way and i really like zach stein is is way up there for me yeah, as yeah, far no, as a embodied and I and, and would, would agree with most of it i mean um the i don't know and i never had spoken to Mark, so I'm not sure at what point he sees it as a flight into unit. You know, I well, I'm going to ask him because he's on the podcast on December 13th. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to poke him with some Benita Roy ideas. (laughs) Okay, Um, okay, Okay, transitioning. Okay, okay, we're untransitioning here. So, let's start with. The idea that the let's just start with the gender binary. That it seems like there's a intergenerational transmission that is being refused. And the intergenerational transmission was that there is a biological gender binary. And you mentioned as we, or maybe this was on the origins of the self but gender manifests in a in a spectrum and so i think let's start by just like kind of delineating what we mean by some of these terms yeah so so there's a lot of moving parts that Mm -hmm. have made the perfect storm and one of the moving parts is when i grew up uh we had boys and we had girls. And there were boys that liked other boys and there were boys that were effeminate and there were boys that were football players and there were boys that only hung out with girls. And there were girls that liked other girls and there were girls that were tomboys and hung out. I mean, when I was growing up, I hung out with a gang of guys and we had fight club. but. I was a girl, like, like, so one of the things that's been happening is that the categories have been getting thinner and thinner. It's the Mm. same with Democrats and Republicans. You, because we always do these meta analyses, you think a Democrat has to be pro-life, has to be this, has to be, but there's no one that actually fits, no Democrat actually fits that profile. That, and as the categories get thin, the polarities get bigger because there's no nuance. And so language is a big, because gender is socially constructed. Now, when you grow up female and the category of gender is very thin and you say, I'm not like that. Then you're not gonna find a match with that category. So maybe there's another category, gay, lesbian, queer, non-binary, you know. So you have to have many, many more categories, but none of them will fit because that's not what growing up is. 
you're, you're never going to fit a category. The categories, but because they're so thin, there's some kind of imperative. So, and, and you're referring to like, the, there's been a thinning of it because as you said, when you were a kid, like boy could entail all kinds of manifestations of your personality, of your sexual preference, of your, of your physical body, all kinds of things. And now all, they've just been. We, they're all over the world. There are women who lived as men on farms and everybody knew they treated them as a man. Everybody mm -hmm. know, knew they were women. Like. Yeah. Or female, let me just say that. Yeah, because you're delineating now there's a biological sex that's a correct, sexual, correct. a sexual, a biological sexual binary in humans, right. which and seems to be like in the animal realm. And and I want to I want to like highlight this because this is where, you know, like on the Internet, the Ben Shapiro's, the Matt Walsh's, this is where they get into these heated discussions where they seem to be talking past each other or there is literally a wrestling of this like fundamental truth that homo sapiens live in a sexual binary. And so I. So the animal world, which is just, we're not going to get into it. Anyone that knows anything about the animal world knows that. You know, female hyenas, you would think they were the males because they have more testosterone and they completely dominate the smaller males. And they're like high in the animal. You know, there's so much diversity in nature. You could not, you can't make a case for like the lobster or Jordan P. This is ridiculous. These are all naturalistic fallacies. So uh, even the dominance hierarchy has been debunked in ecological studies, zoological studies a million times over. So this is a, just people showing that ignorant, they've read a couple of popular things. So, so you can't, there, so now there are people whose genetics and physical organs are very ambiguous. It's almost like they're born with where they could choose to be more biologically like something or another because they are sort of ambiguous in the past they were they were celebrated as a as another sex that like just their biology is ambiguous they might have a penis you know a penis and a vol i don't know I, but th that's very rare and in other cultures they've in the past they've been they've been celebrated as rare sexes and anomalies and stuff so uh, but that's not what's happening in the in, in with kids today. There's like some kind of wave of uh, gender dysmorphia or confusion. So one of the things I just want to say, we got one thing on the table, is that the 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 categories have become really thin. And when you're growing up in a society and and you're trying to match your experience with the cat, it doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't match. So. There's a lot of pressure to uh, to choose because uh, the the because the categories are thin, then the uh, behaviors that denote those categories are also very thin. So like um, the way you dress, I mean, I don't know, I haven't watched TV in a long time, but when you look at advertising for kids now, like I I you know the girls are so 
pampered and primpy and I don't know any young girl. I, I remember, I don't know if you know the uh, internet scandalous celebrity Soph. She's like a 15 year old, completely she's been kicked off of YouTube. But I showed them once, I showed her once one of her videos to my class and someone said, it's not a 10 year old girl, that's like a 10 year old boy. And it was, she just looked like a 10 year old to me, but because she wasn't like, you know, put behaving or putting or dressing or primping like mm. one stereotype or the other, people don't even just recognize that that's just like what 10 year olds look like, you know, like yeah. they're just, they're just kids. So something like that. So, so the pressure has been, the the kids are right in the sense that gender is socially constructed. There's something constructed about the language, uh -huh. but they've only they only understand that the traditional terms are socially constructed. They don't understand that the new ones are socially constructed too. Like right. transgender is a socially is socially constructed, just like male strong, female weak. They don't, so so they can see the previous ones as socially constructed, but they don't know their own are socially constructed and hence vulnerable to advertising and hysteria uh -huh. and stuff like that. And so that's kind of what's happening. Like, like now playing within that arena is interesting. Uh, can be psychologically dangerous. But I think what you're saying is it's the question of whether parents should have the legal right to deny uh, transgender um, interventions on their kids. That's really where the meat hits the road. I mean, you can't really say, I wouldn't really say you should legislate against. I mean, I mean, I think people could legislate against. Um, it's a tricky slope for me. The question is whether. I mean, the lowest hanging fruit is that I believe parents should have the right to deny their children to go through gender transitioning interventions. And that's even being now uh, debated in the courts to make it illegal for parents to make that because it's going to be considered denying them medical care. So that's the lowest hanging fruit. Like that's like the worst option on the table. If I had to talk to parents, I mean, the thing about going through puberty is that no, it's uncomfortable for everyone. Like yeah. guys don't not not you know girls are weird. You're it's weird when your body starts to bleed and your breasts grow and guys don't like necessarily having hair. Like it's a weird thing. Like it's it's weird and it's not confirming. It's not like for some people it could be like, but for many many people the transition puberty is just it's just odd. And so the default would be that you would feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. in your own body because yeah. you don't know this body. And 
it and the first thing they do is they get they give hormone blockers. Now hormone blockers will give you a false sense that everything's okay because it basically delaying puberty, which is admittedly something that most kids maybe you would you know you don't like, like to it. avoid. You don't like it. So this is good. So so they they give you hormone blockers just to delay. And that gives you reason to believe that that is the direction, mm -hmm. that your hunch is correct. And here's another thing. I, we, we talked about this in my school. Adriana Forte, uh, who's been on the show, she talks about menstrual cycles and how that the modernity has always... Uh, um, Try to, you know, we take we take um, pills so that we don't have menstrual cycles, and then we the, the, modernity doesn't like sexed people. They don't like sexed men, and they don't like sexed women. They don't mm -hmm. like it's. There's this because the efficient office worker is gender ambiguous. Yeah. And part of this is the message also that somewhere in between, in, in you know, being liminal, your gender liminal. Oh, okay, we can work with that. And so you see, this is even if you're not of gender, if you don't, if even if you don't have gender dysmorphia or body dysmorphia, there's pressure on both sexes. Not you know, boys not to go through their rage and yeah. roughhouse play and girls, you know, not to go through the cycle of certain parts of your cycle, you're enthusiastic, certain parts of your cycle, you're bitchy and you don't want to be social. And this, this is true. This is like, a, I think the larger kind of pressure that's on, on people. The, I think you've highlighted, you know, where you say the rubber meets the road in one of the most obvious ways is how do we raise our children and what do we tell them? What is this intergenerational transmission of the categories and their breadth and where they can find themselves in it and how they can express themselves inside of their existence and, and what to make of that? Um, the idea of minors having like, you know, I just go back to my, my own fear of tattooing something on my body that I would later regret. Like I just, as a, you know, even as a non-biological parent, you know, I'm, I'm only uncle here, but the idea of allowing the children to do something to their bodies before their bodies are developed that would, uh, you know, change it forever is something that um, is difficult. And But I, you know, I, I just want to reflect back to you kind of what I, what I heard. And, and when I, when I brought up the idea of biological sex as a binary, I think you agreed and said that Anyone who knows anything about biology knows that, but 
it doesn't make the meaning that everyone makes of it always. That hyenas, the female hyenas, have much more testosterone and boss and torture the men. So the... Because testosterone is real, not yeah. gender. Testosterone is real. And gender is socially constructed. Exactly. Okay. There's other places where, you know, as you say, the rubber meets the road on this discussion. And, you know, uh, my father adopted uh, three orphans from Nicaragua 15 years ago. And now they're, you know, f freshmen and sophomores in high school. And, you know, hearing from him about, you know, dealing with this kind of conversation coming back into the home and the children being pubescent and in all kinds of suffering, ambiguity and doubt and, and social anxiety and all these things. It's just like, what a perfect cocktail and what a vulnerable time to have such a foundational identity inquiry that's so like profound it's a profound inquiry like who am i what am i and where do i fit in this world at a time where it's just like so fraught with anxiety and like just looking to belong and like having this storm of emotion and hormone it just sounds like a inhumane conversation to to incept the idea that you could change this you know, it's almost like the, you know, you can be whoever you want, but like you're like, there's some, there's some truth to the reality of like, what is like that there's testosterone coursing through your veins because you're a 15 year old male human, you know, homo sapien on earth in 2022. There's like some truth in that. And, and I think one of the things that makes this conversation so disconcerting for people is that that seems to be like a foundational reality for them. And I think that you've done a good job today, like kind of shaking that foundational reality, like by saying, no, 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 the thing that you think is totally real as like gender there is a biological sex element of that that is real, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. And yeah, the me I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. I, this me. is the tact I would take. So the 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 kids in high school now, their brains, their their awareness is at a level above, in a sense, above what was conventional in the past, uh -huh. because they can use a term like. Gender is socially constructed. Uh -huh. Used to take some kind of Foucaultian expert uh -huh. in college to yeah. be able to see that. Okay, so uh -huh. that so we want to say yes, gender is socially constructed. Yes, but so are all the other terms. They're socially constructed. Queer, LG, you know, all these terms. Trans is it's all. Transgender is a category that's also socially constructed. So where are you going to go to find out who you are? Mm -hmm. You can you can only consult 
that which is not socially constructed. What mm. is that? Mm. Your body. Let's see what it does over time. Yes, it's all socially constructed. Good for you. Where are you going to go? Don't go to me. Say what I want to say. You can only consult what is not socially constructed. Now, of course, if they're deep into it, they might perceive their body and then you have to keep on saying, well, well, you don't know yet. You don't know. You're going through puberty. You don't know. You don't know yet. But keep consulting. That's the only thing you can consult. Everything else is socially constructed. That's where I would go. So it's like a koan, you know? And then if they still said they wanted it, I'd say, no, I'm your parent. <laughs> you can do what you want when you're 18 or whatever. I mean, that, at the end of the day, you know, I would say, I, I love you. And this is, this is, everything else is socially constructed. And I love you. And I love your body. And I love the intelligence that made you mm. you. And I'm curious too. I want to learn along with your body. Mm. That's mm. who I want to learn from. Mm. Not these other idiots. Mm. That's a beautiful take. I like that. Yeah. The idea that, and I, I like that you're giving credit there, that the idea, you know, that, that there are 16-year-old kids or even younger that are saying that gender is socially constructed is a, that's a, that's a profound realization. And as you're saying, a hundred years ago, that was just, that was water that was, making fish wet that they didn't realize and but the same is true about the the other conceptions that you're putting on as a remedy for that realization that gender is socially constructed but so are the other constructions these these increasingly thin demographics these increasingly thin groups these these concepts that we use it's almost as if it used to be that the that the uh the groups were very broad and the broadness allowed for the fractal to expand and now the groups are thinning and thinning and thinning. And that's why more and more groups have to be invented constantly. That's why LGBTQT plus two, like the the thing continues to add um letters onto the onto it because more and more groups need to be invented as a way to fit more of the fractal of existence of reality that that's beautiful and then i would say and eventually to get it right there'd have to be a category by called airy uh -huh. and nobody knows what that is you just have to wait to see what that is yeah that's actually what's going on that is huh because at the end of the day airy doesn't feel like any of those, those are all the 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 stereotype that's given you will never fit who you are. Have you seen 
so Daniel Kazanjian, our mutual friend, he's made this great little meme that's like from the the nitwit who uses notes on his iPhone to keep track of his ideas, and then the midwit who uses this complex, you know, Evernote to this thing, to this thing, to this, the all these different programs to aggregate his to-do lists and all this stuff. And then the postwit, the 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 deep philosopher who goes back to just using notes to keep track of his ideas. Is there some, is there some kind of. That's my calendar. Oh, what do you have? It's just a. Oh yeah. Okay. So you're a postwit. I'm a postwit. You're a postwit. You actually use a. I might be a pre-wit. I'm only yeah, you might reaping the benefits of a post wit. Exactly. So, oh, what a what a shallow, un <laughs> undeveloped woman who uses a paper calendar. Okay, but this has something to do with what we were saying before. To think that complexity or value grows this way. Mm-hmm. We were talking about it as a metaphysical principle, but it's also this other way in which we think sophistication as a human being grows that way when there's the post-wit move. Well, I guess what I'm what I'm alluding to is there so the pre-wit says that there's boys and there's girls, there's men and there's women. And then the midwit says, no, 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 you there's gender fluid, there's gender binary, there's LGBTQ plus two all this this increasing very 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 thin like the difference between gay and queer is just like pretty thin like like all those like thin little delineations increasingly ad infinitum to try to contain the fractal of reality of how vastly diverse humans and their experience manifests on earth and then the post wit is like yeah there's there's men and there's women and there's there or the 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 post wit is just like there's there's people there's humans and there there's just like this fractal of of manifestation of reality so it is it seems you know and i do like that you give credit to the to the realization of of gender being a social construct yeah i think that we need we need pronouns. If you're a trans woman and you and you are sexually attracted to a man, you should have one pronoun. If you're a trans woman and you're sexually attracted to women, you should have a different pronoun. If you're a trans woman attracted to trans women, you need another pronoun. If you're a, I mean, why why don't all these combinations have their own pronouns? Like I, I so we can keep it clear. Yeah, the the conversation spirals out into incoherence for me um, pretty quickly on the fringe. And there is, you know, as we've talked today, it seems like we're trying to kind of zoom in on the meaty bits of like what it actually means. Like, um, because it is such a deep inquiry of like, how do we make our identity? So I do want to zoom in on this 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 one piece here, which is that our identity is solely created by the subjective experiencer. That 
that Aerie gets to say what Aerie is. Because there's some, I mean... Well, it's a little more complex than that. Exactly. My experience is that I'm in tension with my environment, including all of the sentient beings and every, like all of my evolutionary history and everything. I'm in tension with all of that. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a standalone individual. I have to work with the people around me to make my identity. Right. You're, you're, you're constantly, your identity is always being co-constructed by other people. So transitioning is not going to change that. You're not going to be able to transition and then all of a sudden you're free from the co-creation of your own identity. Um, that, that, that is, if that's what you're trying to get out of then that's 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 a real confusion that's not that's not possible okay could you just say a little bit about how you currently see our identities as created by or like how to what extent are our identities collectively created well we have to go back to the origins of the self model and it's developmental so we we enact identities at first before we have any concept of them. And we see what supported us. Like we see, we play doctor or we play uh-huh. mother. Yep. You know, we pick up a doll and we play mother because that's one of the things we see can be mimicked. Right? We try so on the different roles. We try on the roles. And so, um, <clears throat> because we can't just, Nothing comes from nothing. You know, if we were grown up with dogs or wolves, we tr- walk, we try on one of those roles. So, so this is called pretending. The thing about kids is when they're in this stage, they know they're pretending. And you can read um, transcripts of kids that are playing pretending, and the people they're pretending with have two different roles and stuff. They're very, can keep all of this in their mind as a Mm. big game. At a certain point, we forget that it's optional and we're pretending. You know, like I remember when the first time I lived with a man, I started acting like we were very open and fun and, and, you know, progressive. And then I started like making the bed every day. And that role of like, okay, this is a family and the mother role was still in me. And if I wasn't aware, I'd start getting cranky and just this thing would come over me, right? And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be aware that I'm pretending, right? So so the, the, the taking on roles is we have to enact our identity. So there is an external thing where we dress a certain way, we do this. And, you know, I've always said that in terms of fashion, women has, have always had much more option we could wear suits we could wear army clothes men have never haven't had so many options so all this stuff is is part of the developmental process and then so our identity first becomes role we have this pretending uh period and then we get role so this is something that happens psychologically well what am i 
I'm a transgender. I'm a, or it used to be careers, you know, people get yep. fixed in their careers or their mother or their father. And the problem with this is once you're fixed in a role or a category, they will never fit because the human experience is more rich. It's too big. Than it, it's too big. So when, you know, it's typical of my generation when the kids went to school, the mother, father roles didn't work anymore. We make dinner every night. People literally didn't know who they were, the yeah. person they lived with for 40 years, because once the role is no longer supported, it, it, there's some, you're just naked in front of the other, okay? So the point is, is that, that this goes on for a long time until you get to the narrative self. And the narrative self is able to say, well, then I took this role and I took that role. Mm -hmm. It's it's. I'm sorry about the dogs. I can't change that. And so this, you escape the roles because you put the roles in a thread. Then I went to school and I used to be like this. And then I got divorced. Thank God I got divorced. You can, you can justify and understand all these syncopation of roles because you have mm -hmm. a narrative thread. Yeah. And that's the narrative self. And so that is later on in life. And so to ask like, Teenagers to have that kind of distance from the role uh, is a problem. Now, the problem with their parents is that they're still at a role re required stage. If they, yeah, if they, they don't are. understand what's going on, they're still fixated on roles. Yeah. And not beyond that. I mean, and then there's stuff beyond the narrative self, but that's the problem there. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, you would. Uh... I think that anyone in their right mind would want for people to be able to transcend their role selves and find out who they really are. That's just one of the, like, that's part of my metaphysics, that that's one of the meanings of life is to like find out what it is to be the conscious experiencer of existence that you are. And that it's a pitfall to get fixated on your role and you are likely to get stuck in that role if that's the case. In your um, Origins of the Self, you said that something upwards of 90% of Western people never transcend their role selves and they'll be stuck in their roles for their entire adult lives, meaning that and correct me if I'm wrong, but even if they have this narrative self that they that they bounce around between roles, bouncing around between roles isn't transcending the idea of a role. It's not actually finding your real self. It's just bouncing around between roles. And it might be a subtle improvement over stuck in one role, but bouncing between roles is still just bouncing between roles. And you know, I hear you alluding to a, a, a meta-awareness that roles are a thing and that you were conditioned to have them and 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 also that in your adolescence in your family when you have a parental authority you're basically stuck in a certain role like you're kind of still stuck in this parent child dynamic and it almost, you know, to me, it almost seems like I would 
encourage children to play with the roles and try to instill in them an awareness that that you're just playing different roles like keep that play that you know that you had up until you were 7 years old where you were playing doctor you were playing house you were playing mom you were playing firefighter all these different pretends you know this encouragement yeah keep pretending oh you don't want to be a boy today great like wear a dress whatever you want to do that can be as socially constructed as you want um and to to try those on as a way to experience a different ontology so that you can gain a meta awareness of identity or role or what it is to be you try on those other things so that you can see that you are both fluid in your identity and bound in it in some sense because there's the way i see it and the way i've basically experienced it is that there are so many different things that i want to be there are so many different, you know, like I would love it if a lot more people listen to my podcast. I would love it if it made me money. I would love all kinds of different things. I would love it if I was more disciplined. I would love it if I had more attention. But my attention is fucking scattered for the vast majority of my time unless I'm on the edge of a cliff. Like, and the discrepancy between what I wanted to be and what I was brought me so much pain. And then there is there is some improvement in my life when I both accept how I am and keep the tension for how I would like to be. I, it's not it's not one or the other. There is always a gap between where I am right now and where I could be. There's there's a gap there and and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing so you know this you know as we kind of circle back here on this the thread of intergenerational transmission what do you think how do you think we as a society or we as a community of parents ought encourage and or instill in our children an understanding of this you know like as you said 95% of western adults won't ever transcend their role and they'll be stuck in a role how do, how does a parent help facilitate a child developing out of their role self and really starting to ask the efficacious questions of who they really are. Well, I'll try to answer in a wrap-up way versus now we're going to go Great. another rabbit hole. So I've done this experiment. I mean, I could, I could say many things. I'll just say this one thing. So I'll ask you, well, two things. First of all, we live in a world 
of so much psychic abundance. I mean, I get it. If I could come back, I, I love I love my life. If I could come back, I would do something else because that would be a life I could see, okay, I wouldn't have done it first, but given this, I'd love to come back and make those choices because mm -hmm. it seems really cool to have mm -hmm. done that. Um, um, you know, I don't have kids and I would be interested in having kids, and but I would not, not want to have one life and have had kids. Okay, so that's that's one of the things about it that's driving this. And and one of the unfortunate things is um you're probably like me, you have your foot in a lot of different things and you're jack because we're there's a lot of options. Okay. But I'll ask this to people and I've and I've asked it to people who are in very oppressed or, you know, underprivileged uh, categories. Those are uh -huh. categories too. And I'll say, well, you can't cherry pick. You, you can't, can't what? Be, you can't cherry pick. That's okay. not, you can't be as tall as this person, as beautiful as that person, as rich as this person, as creative as, the, okay, so, so pick me one person you'd rather be, but you'd have to be all of the way that person because that's not how it works yeah and no one wants to be someone else yeah not even a person in solitary confinement in a prison mm. and then you say that's why you're the person you are because every day that's the person you want to be that's the truth of it the rest is just bullshit mm. that's a interesting way to like it's almost like we're, you know, and I've heard Jordan Peterson say that. Oh, don't, don't compare yourself to other people because just because he's in a Ferrari doesn't mean his life is great. He's likely addicted to cocaine and the woman, the beautiful woman next to him is a prostitute. He's, he's afraid every day that he's barely holding everything together. So uh, appearances can be misleading and it's almost like we're stuck in our own ontology and we're stuck in our own experience. You just got to see it through. Yeah, I don't think you're stuck. I think, I think we actually, we actually affirm every day that this is the person we want to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some crazy people that actually stalk other people and they get all absorbed, like psychically absorbed, and really want to be the other. But, but really, you know, you might want to be as rich as Elon. But do you want to be Elon? Like. Like, do you want to be like running Twitter and SpaceX and, and you know, look at his body. He's going to die of a heart attack really soon. He's got like, like, high blood. Like, I don't want to be him. Like, neither do I. No, I don't even want to be as rich as him. But, but nobody, you know, and his parents and, you know, the whole thing. Nobody would trade. Nobody would trade. Nobody wants to trade. Hmm. Then the person that's in prison, he doesn't want to trade because he doesn't want to be the man. That's why he's in prison. He doesn't like yeah. the man. Yeah. So there's some kind of affirmation that's happening. You know, we used to say, in the, someone said the other day, uh, I think it was Michael Taft, or, or I, in one of these conversations, they said, you know, I don't want to be that person that like meditates forever and then never comes back. I, yeah. I love this world too much. And of course, the, the Buddhists will say, well, that's why you're here, because you love the world too much. 
but it's the same thing. There's some kind of affirmation that's happening all the time, whether we want to put effort into it or not, that makes us who we are. Hmm. And I think that that's a, I, I sense in myself like a desire to be able to affirm people's existence and to affirm their experience and to empower them to experience their existence. And it sounds fucking kooky when I say it, but it's like to encourage and empower people to experience their experience. Because we're so often just dissociated from our own experience. We're stuck in the role. We're trying to like do the thing or we're like, rebelling against the role that we were given so that we're going to do a different role, but it's all just, it's a, it's such a confusing miasma to navigate as an individual. And then uh, having aspirations to be able to be supportive to other people. It's uh it's such a huge question. And I so appreciate your time and your insight on it. It's very useful for me. Thanks for the great questions. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll do it again. I'd really I have Wait, more yeah. I have more questions for you. Okay. And Thank I'll you. I'm going to I'll send you my recording with Mark Gaffney when I finish it too cuz I'm going to ask him some Bonita questions and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Awesome. I'd love to hear his take on it. I mean, obviously it's a sliding conversation. Uh so hopefully it'll be in the spirit of of curiosity. Certainly. Certainly. Thanks so much Bonita. Have yeah. a good day. You too. Bye. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. That was a long talk, and I hope you got something out of that. Um, yeah, if you want more from Benita, you should check out the Origins of the Self presentation. Link is in the description below. God, I hope it's in the description below. When I record this thing, I still haven't published it, so there's a chance that I forget that, but I think I'm going to remember it on this one. Um, at any rate, thank you so much for listening. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, please share it review it or sign up for patreon there's all kinds of things you could do that you probably won't <clears throat> sorry <laughs> i'm feeling a little cynical today apparently but thanks so much for listening we'll see you on the next episode my friends see ya